Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jaded 80s Baby Podcast. My guest this week went from being a high school dropout to almost losing his life in a devastating car accident to living his best life as a flourishing real estate investor and financial whiz. Miles Wakeham, host of the Be Unconstrained podcast, is stopping by to give you his inspirational life story and tell you how you can change your mindset so that you can break free from the rat race and live the life that you've always dreamed of. There's a lot in this episode, and it's way different than pretty much any that I've recorded before. The first half is more of like a TED Talk. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to get a lot from it. So let's get to it. You're now listening to the Jaded 80s Baby Podcast. Your home for candid conversations with industry leaders, tastemakers, and random backpackers from around the globe. You might learn something, you might cringe, but you'll definitely be entertained. Here's your host, the original jaded 80s baby himself, Derek Pfeiffer. All right, Miles, okay. <laughs> why do you consider yourself a financial contrarian? That's a good question, isn't it? Um, I, I I didn't ever consider myself a contrarian until I put myself out into the rest of the world and found that they didn't think like me and they didn't act like me and they didn't do the things that I felt were normal, everyday things. And when you are kind of, I wouldn't say I'm an outcast. I was never cast out of a society. I just never wanted to go into it in the first place. Uh, you know, I, I moved to the United States when I was young. I was 25 when I first came here. But before that, I mean, at the age of eight, I was the kid on the bike throwing newspapers at three in the morning to make money. Uh, I didn't come from a very wealthy family. I, my family were lower middle class, I guess you would say. that. You know, they gave me everything I needed as a kid, but nothing more. Um, mm-hmm. And that meant that everything that I had to earn, I had to do my, on my own. And I started realizing that um, you can't, uh, the bare minimum is not going to cut it. Like what I need to do is I need to start understanding, uh, I, I guess I call them systems, how the, how the economic systems of the world works. And, and this is an eight-year-old kid coming to this realization. So that's kind of weird, right? Yeah, um, but, you know, it, I ended up, I grew up um, through the 60s and the 70s in Australia in a country that had very little wealth. Uh, it wasn't as opulent as it may be today. A lot of the reason was there was no debt. Um, nobody took on debt they couldn't pay off. And at that time, I mean, towards the end of the 70s, we were living in a world of like 18, 20% interest rates. Nobody had a house they couldn't afford because you couldn't afford it, period. Um, you, you, bought, you built a car from buying somebody's old junker and you learned how the thing worked and you made it work. And that, that, was, that was kind of the, the underlying way that it was. And it was a very British kind of upbringing, uh, very prim and proper and ceremony was important and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, you're on an island on the other side of the world and the buck stops on your desk and you better just suck it up and deal with it. And that was how, you know, we all are. And I guess that's probably best portrayed in things like movies like Crocodile Dundee where, you know, it's a, it's a um, you know, everything on the ground is going to kill you um, no matter where you go and <laughs> – it's on you, man. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah. So you, you you rise to the occasion. So 
um, when I went into my uh, high school years, I had already had a bit of a taste of of going out there and making money for myself. And um, everything they were teaching me made no sense at all. I was never somebody who um, could understand academic understanding and learning. I appreciate it more now. But back then, if I couldn't relate what somebody was teaching me to an actual real-life experience or a real-life challenge that I had, I just shut off. I didn't want to hear it. So I was not a good student. And that meant that I left high school before I graduated. I never graduated high school. I went straight out into the workforce and started building businesses. And I got stung by the, uh, the bite of technology when the first ever personal computer came out in 1978. And I learned how to program computers. And you couldn't learn that from anybody because they were brand new. So I learned how they work and I learned how to make them work and I learned how to program them. And this 16, 17-year-old kid is now writing computer software. And the next thing you know, I've got people calling me up saying, you know, I've got a business. Can you write me a program to do my invoices or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I can, but that's pretty easy. What else do you want? And they're like, no, no, that'll work. That'll do it. So, you know, eventually, a couple of years later, I started a software company. And uh, then we started getting real clients. We started, and, and I'm like 19 at this point. Um, I'm running a software company. I've got six guys working for me and we're writing software for major fortune 500 corporations, government departments, the attorney general's department in my state. Um, and then eventually defense contractors. And about a year or two later, uh, I was writing the uh, billing system for a $50 billion submarine manufacturing contract for a defense contractor. And I was barely, uh, illegal enough to drink a beer. Um, you know, so it's a weird story. So anyway, that progressed a few years later and I eventually found myself, uh, I sold my business. Um, I was okay financially, not great, but I'd learned a lot. At 25, I went to Hawaii on a vacation. I thought I deserved it. I met this girl, uh, as you do. And next thing you know, I, she was from California. Next thing you know, I found myself in Los Angeles and, Next thing you know, I ended up getting married, um, which was unexpected, unusual, but, you know, I thought that was where it was. So uh, the way it worked is that if you find yourself in a foreign country and you, you um, uh, get married like that, uh, you can't leave uh, because they're processing your paperwork and it could take them six to 12 months. So they give you kind of like a temporary work permit. And they basically say, you're stuck here. And all my stuff's back in Australia. I came to, a, you know, the States with a suitcase. I had nothing. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like living off her, <laughs> her apartment and she's like feeling the stress of that. She wasn't making a huge amount of money or anything. But um, during the day she'd go to work and I'd just wander around the streets of, uh, it was Studio City, like uh, Hollywood-ish around there. I'd be wandering around the streets. Um, I was a musician when I was a kid. My parents put a violin under my chin when I was five and I never stopped playing music. So I ended up wanting to form bands and get into that whole scene. And uh, I found every single guitar store I could that was in walking reach of my house and um, of, of our apartment. And uh, yeah, the next thing you know, I'm in a band. The next thing you know, I'm in Hollywood. I'm 
playing on the clubs up Sunset Strip all the time. And uh, that was fun, but it didn't pay the bills. When they eventually gave me a work permit, I um, found uh, I had to go and get work. And this kid who had done all of this stuff in Australia, you know, I'd tell somebody at a job interview, oh, yeah, I wrote this big, you know, $50 billion thing for this submarine. And they're like, shut up, kid. <laughs> you don't know sure squat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, really. Sure you did, you bloody immigrant. We can't. We can't vouch for anything you're telling us. So you're starting from nothing. I'm like, eh, all right, fine. I've done that before. So, yeah, I got a job working in this crappy kind of audio rental company fixing their computers that I had to literally beg for. And I went for about 20 job interviews to try to get that. And after six months, they realized, oh, God, this guy's the real deal. And the next thing you know, I, I then had headhunters coming after me and I ended up working on contracts and, so anyway, long story, I, I, I get to um, a year or so in, and this is about 1990, and I get this phone call from a headhunter. There's this company uh, out in Th uh, Thousand Oaks, which is like bordering LA County, Ventura County, and um, they uh, start up and they're looking to hire some contractors for six, 12 months. Uh, they need somebody to basically build their entire computer system uh, infrastructure and software uh would you be interested i'm like yeah i guess let me i'll go out and have a chat to them so i go out and they're in this like i guess it's like mobile trailer on a parking lot <laughs> and and i'm thinking oh, seriously are these guys gonna pay me able to pay my my bills here all right anyway it, it was really exciting because they had no they were starting from scratch and they were this like this medical kind of thing and i didn't really understand it but I, I, I liked the adventure, you know. So I said, yeah, yeah, all right, sign me up. So me and a, there was only about three or four other computer guys there. I was about, you know, with the very early guys there. Um, we all went out to lunch and they got to know me and they seemed to like me and we all decided we could work together. So we started working for this place. And six months later, they eventually had finished building the building they were moving into. So we all ended up moving into that. And um, they offered me a job. And I said, I don't really want a job, you know. I'm not a job kind of guy. But they said, oh, I'll tell you what, we'll give you 20% of a down payment for a house. I'm like, seriously? Yeah, all right. <laughs> Bring it on, man. I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, Southern California, it's not a cheap place, right? So it's bloody expensive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, do it. So anyway, they did. And I was able to buy a house for my new family and i thought wow this is this is very cool the brady bunch life here i don't know anyway um so uh i you know this company eventually becomes uh they they get approval to sell their first product and that company was amgen they're the world's largest biotechnology corporation ever and we went from a trailer part to uh 3.8 billion dollars in sales in the first year and um, part of the incentive that they gave me to come and work for them, the house was the thing I wanted, but well, they, they threw in a crap ton of these things called stock options, which I didn't even know what the hell they were. Um, but I took them and they said, look, you stay with us for three years. They, they vest. I'm like, what's vesting? Well, you see that secretary over there? I'm like, yeah. Well, she drives a Mercedes because she vested her stock options. I'm like, oh, really? All right. <laughs> Sure, beats my crappy Honda. You know, I'll take it. Um, yeah, so lo and behold, I stay there for three or four or five years or something like that. 
And when I uh, and I get a phone call from Australia, my mum had taken ill. She uh, had a car accident. I had to go back and look after her. So I said to my wife, um, "You up for moving to Australia?" And she goes, "Yeah, all right, I'll take it." Um, so we ended up selling our home. I had to quit my job. I took all of this, and when I vested, when I took all those stock options and I cashed them out, I had multiple millions of dollars. Uh, I didn't. I was thirty-two years old. Um, I didn't have to work another day in my life. That was weird because um, I wasn't opposed to working. I was more opposed to um, having somebody controlling what I could do, not doing, right? So we go back there and then uh, buy a house in Australia after we got out and cleaned up all of our loose ends in the States and um, I didn't have to work. So I'm sitting around the place doing nothing. I, I being a musician, I built a recording studio. I thought that would be fun. I did that pretty quickly and and started, you know, doing some music stuff, but it wasn't quite enough to really keep my, my uh, juices flowing, if you like. And then um, out of the blue, my wife up and leaves me, and uh, which was weird. And I don't I, – I kind of understand it, but I also don't understand it. Um, but I think that the shock of moving to a foreign country, which to me was something I embraced for her was not. And also the allure of money that was there that she could basically, you know, take her, her share of the, of this, you know, treasure chest and go. So um, she, she left. And I, I remember it was about the end of 1995. I was sitting around in this big house that we bought. And I, I had specifically said, um, the one thing that was really important, and this is a kind of a running theme, is that I want to buy a house and I want to own real estate. I always want to own real estate because my parents had a house and I grew up in it and I want to have a house and I want to grow up in it and I want my kids to have a house and grow up in it and I want the stability of that. Um, I might want to travel around the world, but I always want to know I've got at least a, a home base, like an anchor point. So we had bought a house before she left and uh, paid cash. And then when I when she left, I had to mortgage that that house half to get half of it out, right. or it would have been sold. So I, I did that. So now I go from somebody who never had to work a day in his life to somebody who's got a mortgage to you know half the money's gone. There was a little bit left, but not really a huge amount after all of the bills were paid and the transitional costs and lawyers and the whole bit. So um. I remember end of 95, I was sitting in this big old empty house and feeling a bit, you know, feeling down on my luck, feeling pretty sad for myself. And some friends I grew up with knock on the door and they come over and they go, listen, you, you, you shouldn't be spending the holidays in depressing land. Why don't you come with us to, um, we're going to go to the a state called Queensland. It's about two day drive. Big, uh, this is a time of the year that it's summer in Australia. Mm -hmm. and they had these big beaches and it was like gorgeous. And I, I said, yeah, whatever, I'm doing nothing else. I mean, you sure, I'll go along for a ride. So we, we're driving out the day after Christmas and we'll be back the day after New Year's. I'm like, okay, fine. So day after Christmas comes. I get in the car with them and it's myself, my, my, my friend who I kind of grew up with and his girlfriend sitting in front and uh, we drive two days. We get all the way to Queensland. We have about, I don't know, about a week there. I had a pretty good time, but you know, I was still pretty depressing. I, <laughs> I wasn't my normal jovial, fun, happy self. I was, you know, anyway, um, we come back. It's the day after New Year's 
and uh, we drive the first day. We get halfway across the country. Now, you're driving most of this through the outback of Australia. It's bushland. But the roads are decent. They're paved, but it's not freeways. You're talking about adjacent roads and whatever. We get a day in it, fine stop in one of the towns, sleep there. The next day, I take the first shift driving. I head out. We get to lunchtime. I've done my bit. We stop. We get a bite to eat. I hand the keys over to my mates, uh, my buddy, who's you know, it's his car, and he's driving the next round. So he's, dri- he's driving. His girlfriend's in the passenger seat in the front. I'm in the back seat reading a book. He gets about 20 minutes into the drive, and all of a sudden, I hear water. I'm like, what the heck? I'm in the outback. This is like desert. There's no water out here. I look up and we're in a lake. <laughs> I'm like, how did we get into a freaking lake? And I realize, and, and this is, you, he's traveling fast. I mean, we're going at like 80, 90 mile an hour from road and he hits water. And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> We've, and, and I said in the back of my mind, because everything slows down, like everything becomes this kind of frame-by-frame frame experience at this time. And I remember thinking to myself, his name's Lindsay. I said, Lindsay, don't lose control of the car, buddy. Don't lose it. And then black. Everything's black. Um, I don't know what happened. I wake up because there's this guy on the side of the car with this big metal contraption jaws of life cutting the freaking car door off and i i realize i'm on the back seat the front seat's on top of me his girlfriend's on top of that but i i check you know my fingers working yeah they're working my toes yeah they're working okay good at least i got my limbs um i say to the dude kind of you know half out but i said to him get her don't worry about me i'm fine get her and he ignores me. Okay. So next thing you know, he's like pulling me out from under this seat, which was pretty painful. Got me out, throws me on a stretcher on a gurney, and then hauls me into an ambulance. And then my mate Lindsay's in the ambulance already. He seems to be okay, better than me. And then I realized um, his girlfriend was killed and her body was on top of me. So I woke up with her body on top of me and she's dead and it's like oh shit this is pretty bad but i realized you know okay um this is pretty bad but i'm gonna get through this you know i what's what's the worst can happen now yeah. <laughs> i die you know I'm, I'm still alive i'm okay so this ambulance hauls across the outback to the lo- closest country town that had a hospital puts me in there and then puts me under one of those um, induced comas for like Mm -hmm. six six days, I think it was. Um, I wake up and I'm back in my, in the city and back in my hometown in this government hospital. And I'm in this room and across, there's like six guys in this room and I'm in one of the beds and across the other side's my mate Lindsay and he's in the other one. I'm kind of like, they got me on morphine. I'm like, you know, spaced out, whatever. And, um, I said to him, what happened? And he tells me, well, what happened was we were driving, you know, when we were driving over the outback, we went over a crest. You were in the back reading a book. You didn't see it. We went over a crest and on the other side of the crest, there was a flash flood and the road had washed out and there was this big river and we hit the water and I just couldn't control it. And he's feeling really 
bad because he killed his girlfriend. I mean, that that's what he thinks. I'm trying to tell him accident, you weren't responsible, you didn't do anything malicious, you had no intent to hurt any of us. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Don't you take responsibility for that. That was, you know, the whole thing. So anyway, this is kind of how it goes. I, I had lost uh, most of the use of my left side of my body. My shoulder was destroyed. My right leg was snapped in two, so that all had to be put back together again. Broken ribs, the whole bit. But for the most part, it was mainly uh, limbs for me. Um, I spent the next uh, six weeks recovering. They actually turfed me out of that hospital way earlier than they should have. Um, I could could not walk, and they sent me back home to be in this big empty old house by myself, where I had to, you know, they sent you a, a nurse once a day or something to look at, make sure you didn't kill yourself. But that was about it. This is kind of like frontline military medicine, right? Um, anyway, as it happens, uh, six weeks later. I have to get my ass back to America because you have to set foot in the country. If you've been away and you've got a green card, which I'd had, in order to retain it, you have to step foot back in the country every six months. And uh, it was clocks ticking, right? And here I am, beaten up wreck. So I ended up, um, I met this girl in the whole process of doing it who was a nurse. And we got along great, you know, and she ended up, agreeing to come with me to the States. So we ended up coming there and long story short, two years later, uh, we got married and the whole story was different. And at that point I was trying to now make kind of a life for myself back at home. And I realized uh, by a couple of years later, uh, we eventually had a daughter and a couple of years later, I, I wasn't cutting it in Australia. I was just a fish out of water. It didn't make any sense. It was like, you know, big fish, small pond kind of stuff. I had to go back to the States. So we ended up deciding to move back to the States and I landed with nothing, a suitcase. Oh, one important factor was the parents of the girl who died in the car were suing my buddy who was driving for negligent homicide. Now, it was not only a civil case against him, but they have put a criminal case against him. And when they do that, the Australian government refused to pay all the medical bills for me. So I, I, had, I was disabled and no medical insurance at all. So all my money went, just disappeared. It went to lawyers trying to fight things. It went to medical expenses. I was broke, dead broke. So here's a kid who's gone from nothing to being a multimillionaire to being dead broke in, I don't know, what about a six-year time span. Um, so now I go back to the States with a, with a, a wife and a, and a toddler a child and a suitcase of clothes and no money. All right, let's do it all over again. <laughs> so I hook up with a few people that I know and I got a couple of quick sort of consulting gigs and eventually I got back on my feet and we started to make some money and eventually they led into longer term things. And we spent all that money just setting ourselves back up again, you know, getting, uh, renting a home, filling it with furniture, buying cars and whatever. Um, two or three years later, I got my citizenship finally. Um, and then straight after that, we decided to start buying rental properties, uh, with the extra money I was making. And, um, that ended up 
doing pretty well for us in the 2000s because if you remember that time, the property market started to go up into crazy town. And uh, by about 2006, 2007, I, I was a multimillionaire again. Go figure. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. 2008 comes, all gone. Yeah. <laughs> all gone. I went from, from zero to hero to zero to hero back to zero again. Uh, so at this point in time, I'm like, what the hell's going wrong here? <laughs> why, why is this happening to me? You know, why am I going from one extreme to another? And then after 2008, I started to realize that um, we had some property that was in Australia as well, some rental property still. We sold that. And I also got a, a small payout for the, eventually we settled a lawsuit against the government in Australia for what they did to me wasn't a huge amount of money, but it was enough to put a down payment on a home. So we ended up moving to Arizona. We bought a house here. Um, we uh, bought some rental property with the additional proceeds, uh, some in Australia, some in the US. When 2008 happened, Australia was doing really well. They were exporting everything they could dig up out of the backyard to China and making a ton of money on it. So they didn't have a recession. Uh, we did. So I sold the properties we had in Australia and made a lot of money on those brought it over and um, kind of settled everything to a stable point in the States and still had a little bit of money left over. And in Arizona, in Phoenix at the time, there were all these people getting foreclosed. I remember all my friends were losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing everything. And uh, you could go down to the local county courthouse on an afternoon and sit in a, in a room. In fact, they even did this out in the outside in the town square in, in Phoenix you could go down there. If you had cash, you could buy people's foreclosed properties for 10 cents on the dollar. Um, so I so I did. I, I said to myself, I, said, I remember sitting down with my wife and I said, you know, I've been through hell. I've, I've seen death. I've seen the other side of that. I've seen great winnings and I've seen great loss. And right now, what I understand is if I did the polar opposite of everybody else, I tend to win. And when I do what everybody else is doing, I tend to lose. So everybody else right now is giving up and they're, they're, they're walking away from their homes. They're giving the keys back to the banks. How about we buy them all? And she's like, okay, fine. I'm game. <laughs> so I go down to the courthouse and uh, I, a friend of mine was a property developer here in Arizona, I fixed his computers for him. And um, his son was a, an up-and-coming real estate uh, agent, real good guy, real smart. And I talked to him and I said, what do you think about uh, me buying a ton of these properties? He goes, yeah, I don't mind. I'll take the commission. I'm like, well, there'll be auctions. Well, I'll take it when you sell them. Okay, fine, whatever. Help me out, you know. And he gave me some advice and he gave me some tips. So I wandered down to the courthouse and I'm literally going, oh, that, that one, oh, that one, oh, that one, oh, that one. 23 properties later. So we've got this huge portfolio. And then my wife, who was really interested in flipping properties, like um, refurbishing them, we hire a bunch of Mexican guys and became good friends because we're immigrants, they're immigrants. We all had something in common. And uh, we took all these properties and we turned them into really nice places to live and we put them on the rental market and we started to make money on the rents. And um, that was great. You know, I'd buy a property back then 
that's today probably five hundred thousand dollars. I was buying for sixty, seventy grand. Uh, so I was doing pretty well out of it. And then you put maybe twenty grand into it, put it back online, wait a couple, three, four years, and the next thing you know, it's back to five hundred k. You've done very well. Do that twenty three times over. I mean, you got money. So all of a sudden, it was like, oh, we're back to it again. We're we're back into the back in the good times, baby. You know, but I wasn't interested in selling these properties because I realized that, and this is where I came to my conclusion that led to a book I've got coming out next year and also my podcast and all the stuff that I do, that it's not about the capital and the equity and the asset. It's about buying something that doesn't take all of your time to generate its wealth. Um, I call that smart income. And, and the whole idea is that if you're willing to go through the motions of a life of high extremes and high lo- and low lows, like I did, if you're willing to pony up for that and you can get those benefits eventually, and it's kind of like, it's like what I sort of see as a universal norm. You know, everything in the universe works in balance. I'm going to sound really, you know, Zen Buddhist here, but I'm not trying to be. Okay. Um, I, I was raised a, as a kid in Australia, and one of the things we used to do on the weekend was surfing. And I learned more out of learning how to surf than I ever learned out of school or anything or even college because I learned one thing, and that is that the, that the universe is all about ups and downs. It's about waves. And it's, it's natural. It's in everything in our dynamic. It's what keeps our planet spinning. We have a, a north and a south pole, magnetic poles that keep everything in balance. We, we cycle. The sun comes up. The sun goes down. The moon goes up. The moon goes down. We, cycles are everywhere. Sine waves are everything. That's the basis of electricity, the basis of radio frequency. Um, resonance is about ups and downs. If you accept that, and as a kid, as a surfer, I saw this up close and personal, you start realizing that if you can predict that things go up and things go down, as a surfer would do, you're never going to catch a wave if you position yourself right at the time that it's going up. You have to be ahead of it. You have to see it in the distance. You have to see it coming. You have to see it growing. And then you start paddling well before it hits you. And the, the movement you have going forward and the inertia of the wave going forward will pick you up and all of a sudden you'll get a free ride. You'll be using its energy and you'll get a free ride going forward. That's how business is. If you understand that things happen in cycles and waves, but you're willing to go out and get wet and get out there in the water and be ahead of it and see the wave emerging and pick your target, right? Pick what you want you'll get the best ride of your life. And the best ride of your life is wealth. And I found that with real estate because I could see the cycles of it going up and down. I've seen that cycle in technology, but I've always done it more because it was my passion more than anything else. But I realized that it's all about waves and it's all about cycles. And if you can embrace that, then it's just a matter of being patient and positioning yourself ahead of time because you can't rush out into the water and catch a wave, right? It doesn't work like that. It's a strategic process. But if you realize that life's a marathon, not a sprint, and that you're out there for, you're, you're on this planet for, I mean, the US average life expectancy for a male is 79.3 years. And you're on this planet for that period of time. 
you shouldn't be focusing on what do I need today that gives you an immediate benefit, but then after today, you've got nothing. You need to be focusing on what am I going to build incrementally that is going to allow me to position for the wave that's coming on the horizon so I can get exponential return. And that's been the story of my life. And um, it's it, it doesn't stop here. Um, the one thing that I've always embraced is the freedom to travel. Uh, and it's the reason I'm in the States right now and COVID's not helping, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, I spend six months of my life traveling around the world now looking for waves. I go out looking for opportunities in places that most people dare to tread in. Um, and that's, it's kind of like an almost an Ernest Hemingway novel. Right. <laughs> I go into weird, weird and wonderful places doing that sort of thing. But here's the funny thing. Along the way, I find opportunity. And uh, one of the opportunities I found was Bitcoin. I, learned, I bought Bitcoin in 2011 when nobody knew what the hell it was, but I happened to be a techno guy. And I held on to that. I bought it for about seven bucks and I sold it at about 17,000 bucks and I bought a hell of a lot of it. That didn't hurt. That was nice. Um, also, and again, it's just seeing a wave and, and punting on it. Um, last year, I got all of my disability and all of the work fixed in me from the car accident from 20 odd years ago by going, uh, I have some friends who are doctors here and I'd ask them, you know, I can't get, I'm not covered by insurance for this pre-existing condition, all that stuff. So I said, what do you think it's going to cost me to, now that I've, you know, made it, I've got some money now I can afford to get this thing fixed. What do you think it's going to cost me? And I got quotes of like $150,000, $200,000. And, um, in the back of my mind, there's this kid who used to be the guy with the paper route when he was eight years old. And I'm like, I ain't spending that sort of money. I could buy real estate with that. <laughs> so what did I do? I went to Mexico, I went to Guadalajara, and I met up with some of Latin America's finest uh, orthopedic surgeons. And I had my complete shoulder rebuilt and my complete, all of my, uh, this side of my body completely bit rebuilt effectively uh, in Guadalajara. And uh, it cost me nine thousand US dollars for everything, less than the cost of my copay for insurance if I was to claim it in the states. And the crazy thing about it was, I said to my physician after the surgery, after I was recovering, it was the best medical experience I'd had ever, better than anything in Australia, better than anything in the states. It was five star VIP private healthcare. And I said to the physician afterwards, um, "I'll tell you a funny story." And he goes, "Why?" I said. See the shoulder you built? Paid with Bitcoin, dude. <laughs> I said, you built your first ever Bitcoin shoulder because I paid for the whole thing in Bitcoin. He got a kick out of that. But, but this is the thing. Most people, they, go, they look at Mexico and they think of you know, the Zeta cartel and El Chapo and you know, all that stuff. I look at Mexico and I go, China, is, we're, we're severing business ties with China incrementally. Where are we going to fill all our products from Walmart? Where are they going to get made? Yeah, right there. Mm-hmm. Right. So I go over the hill. There's no dragons over there. I go down there. I befriend the place. I, I buy real estate there. I find all the expat communities. I've spent the last on and off the last 14 years going in and out of Mexico. And um, I'm trying to get residency down there as well. And it's just like, again, Go where people don't expect people to go. Go where people say you shouldn't go there. 
the mainstream narrative is 90% wrong. And I'm one of these people who is a participant in the world. I want to go out and do. I don't want to go out and watch it on TV or read it on Facebook. That's that's not going to make me wealthy. It's not going to make me uh, have life experiences. And I can't do positive things for other people. Uh, I can go to Mexico. Uh, we, uh, we're we getting property in a town down there called San Miguel de Lende. It's in Guanajuato State. And I can go into Mexico and I can hook up with the Rotary Club down there with the expats and I can join up to 150 NGOs and I can do good for the community. I can help people in abject poverty uh, and I can teach them how they can get the hell out of abject poverty. And I also see that it's one of those crazy places being somebody from another country. I didn't ever really understand why opportunity in the United States is so restricted to people. I, what do you because mean? Because I came, well, it's, I feel, I feel weird. I came to this country with nothing and I fought hard to get my first job and to learn from that. And I took risks but nobody ever stopped me from doing that, right? Nobody ever said to me, oh, because of your sex, your race, your skin color, your religion, whatever it is, that you can't participate, right? No one ever said that to me. And that was a foreign experience because that was never the case where I grew up. You were measured on what you could do and the, your net worth of your contributions, not on any predisposed perception by some other idiot who's never done the sort of stuff you're ever going to do. And I got offended by it and I got annoyed and angry about it. And I started realizing that this is disgusting behavior. This is absolutely disgusting behavior. And I'd seen it historically and I didn't agree with it. I did not agree with it at all. And when I went to Mexico, I thought the American people and all of the rhetoric that had been coming from Trump and all of the crap going on down there, the negative slander that had been thrown at these people for so long, I thought that I was going to go down there and they're not going to treat me well at all, right? They're going to associate me, the gringo, with this, this backstory. And so we had to go down there. My wife and I went down there. Well, we'll go down there as Australians. You know, they won't give us a hard time. No, it didn't matter. They didn't give anybody a hard time. They were so hospitable to me, to all of the expat friends that I made down there because there was a community of people who didn't disparage others that we never experienced. And I felt like this is, this is how it should be, right? This is how it should be. And... um Man, that's part of the reason why I prefer to be down there sometimes and here. And I'm nothing against the US. The US has been great to me and I love the place and I'm a citizen and I'm a loyal constitutional following, you know, patriot, all of that good stuff. Yeah, I came here and I made a conscious decision to accept citizenship, but I don't accept some of the behavior that goes on here. So, you know, so you definitely kind you want of, to get out. No, I don't want to get out. I want to not say that I'm from one country anymore. I want the freedom of movement. Right. right. I could be in St. Lucia. I could be in Czech Republic. I could be in South Korea. I could be in Mexico. And I'm always going to be me. 
And along the way, I'm going to find opportunity. I'm going to meet interesting people. I'm going to be um, engaged with society. And um, do you know the old teaching of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? No. It's an old, uh, it's an old psychological study from a guy, I believe his name was Abraham Maslow. He's an old psychologist in the 60s and 70s. And he drew this pyramid that basically I took as a kind of a life um, journey uh, manual. <laughs> and, it, and it starts off at the bottom. Imagine it's like a triangle, right? And at the very bottom layer, you have what they call physiological needs that we all need to, to achieve. And they're, they're things like food, shelter, clothing things that we need to to achieve and as you go up there's other layers and the layers have different names but the layer above that would be things like um uh, uh utility power healthcare, um transport uh, telecommunications and then above that you would be getting into maybe um more esoteric things like you've got a nice smartphone and you wear nice clothes and you've got a decent car and whatever. And then you get to the very, very top and the very top level of the pyramid is called self-actualization. And it's kind of like uh, the Buddhists would follow the path to Nirvana. It's much the same thing. And what happens is that as you progress through life, your goal should be to self-actualize, to actually get to the top of the pyramid. And that means that you need to, meet your physiological needs very quickly and then get beyond that and not continue to repeat staying in that situation forever. And that's the problem with people who come from like Central America and Guatemala and Honduras and places like that. They can't get beyond physiological need. They can't make enough money to get anything more than survive. And our goal should be to, to get beyond survival, to, to evolve beyond that but not to lose sight that the ultimate goal is to get to the top of the pyramid. That takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of struggle. But when you get to the top of the pyramid, your responsibility is to give back and to start throwing ropes down and haul other people up on it, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you can't do that, what the hell are you doing with your life? You know, I don't want to be the guy that on my deathbed is worried about how much money I've got in my bank account. Right, that's that's not right. And I'm I'm 56 years old now. I haven't worked a day in my life for the last 20 odd years. I've been lucky enough to be able to have adventures, and my assets sustain me, so I don't don't need to. But at the same time, I'm not trying to scale up and become Jeff Bezos. Right, that's not that's not my scene. I don't want to do that. I want adventure. I want experience, and I want the freedom to have it. And that to me is true wealth. It's not the numbers of zeros after the amount in your bank account that's important. It's the number of people you've been able to haul up on the rope and bring up the, the, the pyramid and help them get to a point where they're not surviving. They're, they're able to thrive. They're able to have a path and they understand that their path, just like mine, is towards self-actualization. If they get there, they can haul the ropes down. So how do you plan on helping them get there? Well, one thing I've had to teach people and, and, and have them understand that is often not something that's to their benefit is they need to detach from their reliance on counterparties. So people who are relying on third parties to provide them with their income or their, their health care or their security are never going to be allowed to self-actualize. 
They won't because the those that keep that that have the power that are dishing out the scraps to keep them, you know, on welfare or on, you know, government su- subsidies or whatever, they won't let them self-actualize, period, because they're trying to protect their own position of power and they need more people down the pyramid than above them and that means they will never allow them to self-actualize. The only way they can ever do that is to is completely distance themselves from counterparties. That means that like growing up in Australia like we had, we're an island on the other side of the planet. The buck stops on your desk, you either survive or die. And it's up to you. You do it if you take that on and you embrace it and you understand that your lateral community is most important to you. Your decentralized community that you've got is most important. If you if you rely on each other in a sort of a parallel way, you know, you you buy their products, you shop local, you support them, and then in return they support you, you got a chance. But if you're relying on some sort of government handout, government assistance, you will never be allowed to self-actualize, period. And the same is true. We give up so much of our freedoms willingly. The same is true when you rely entirely on YouTube to give you all your news or when you rely on, you know, Facebook to not censor some opposing opinion or you rely on um, an employer to be there for your entire future and for your retirement or you rely on some stupid thing called a 401k uh, to retire on. Let, let me give you a quick little, I know I've gone on a bit about this, but let me give you a quick little story about that. My father was the poster child of giving up his power to counterparties. He worked for a, a corporation for 40 something years, 45 years. Um, he avoided having to serve in World War II because he lost his uh, trigger finger in a carpentry accident when he was a kid. So he, he managed to get out of the draft. So when he um, got, went into the workforce, he went into a corporation, a, a company that made roofing materials, uh, one of these like Fortune 500 big manufacturing places. And he spent all of his life there. At about 20 years through his career, he was a foreman. He went out on roofs and made sure that all the guys doing the roofs did a good job and that it was done to code. And one day he fell off a roof and the company didn't want to take on the risk of putting him back up there because of insurance. So they put him in the labs uh, where they were making their roofing products. They had made shingle tiles and things like that, that were used for roofing. Um, He retired at the age of 65. He died at the age of 67. And what happened was he retired with a gold watch and a, what they call superannuation, which is like an IRA, a 401k type thing. And he died with asbestosis, um, mesothelioma, they would call it here. And he got that because the roofing products he spent most of his life putting up on roofs were asbestos. The company knew most of the time that they were up there doing this, that this stuff was carcinogenic. But they were making so much money, they wouldn't ever stop selling it and that put everybody all their customers at risk but more importantly it put all their employees at risk and he had given up all of his power to them to look after him to give him his retirement to make sure he you know he could he could finish his career in dignity and here i am iding the body at the at the hospital and that and i was 22 when that happened i looked at that 
and I'm like, I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to end up like that guy on the stretcher there, my father. I'm not going to end up like that. I will do the polar opposite of what he did because I cannot accept giving up my freedom and my power to a bunch of crooks. And that's how I've felt ever since. And it's, it's permeated in everything. And I realized that, to your question, the, the, the path to self-actualization is your path, nobody else's. It's your willingness to take it and own it. It's your willingness to be critical of everything you're told. It's your willingness to go out there and see with your own eyes and, and experience with your own participation what the world really is about. And if you're in a situation where you can't find an environment which allows you to do that, get out of that damn environment. I remember stories about jazz musicians in the 20s, great jazz musicians, because I'm a musician, right? And what they had to do when they were not allowed to play in the United States, and they all went to France and Germany and Spain, and they became huge in the UK, and they became huge successes, you know, likes of like Charlie Parker and people like that, over in Europe, because they were allowed to do what they were born to do, what their God-given gifts allowed them to do. They changed their dynamic, and all of a sudden they could thrive. And, I, and my message to anybody is you find yourself in that situation, get the hell out of it and find your place where you can thrive. Find your purpose and go to a place that allows you to, to fulfill it and self-actualize. And when you get to the top of that pyramid, start hauling ropes down so all of your friends can do the same. Wow, that is powerful. That was, that was really powerful, Miles. So for well, I'm I'm not yeah I'm not telling you something as me preaching something I haven't done. I'm telling you what this is real real life for me. Yeah, and I, I hear that and I see that. And my my question, my next question is, and I'm running a bit low on time now, but um, my sure, next my sure. next question is um, for people. Okay, let's say someone doesn't have the the skills that you had, right? You had a technology skills you have programming skills and that's that's a vital skill you can pretty much slip anywhere slip in and out of anywhere you want in the world if you have those tech skills for people who don't have that who want to take those risks how do they get out of that system because i'm thinking about those people that you were talking about in in central america or someplace i forgot where you exactly where you mentioned but thinking about those people and a lot of them just are victims of circumstance some of them just don't have the skills to overcome their situation so how do you escape it if you don't have the same skill set that someone like you had? Well, I would go back to my, my points about surfing. There are always opportunities out there if you've got your eyes open to find them. The hardest part about it is that if all you're doing is living paycheck to paycheck or all you're doing is just farming for sustenance so that you can survive to get to the next day, all of your focus and your time has been taken up in pursuit of sustenance and and survival. If you find yourself in that situation, you have to be able to take some time, detach and look beyond it for what's coming, what's looming, because the opportunities are always out there. I didn't choose technology because, well, okay, I had some luck, but what I did was I said, uh, 
I could be a full-time musician, which was my passion and do that. Or I could be a software developer. What do I want to do? And I remember back to when I was surfing and I thought, well, what, it's not what people want today that's important. It's what they're going to want tomorrow. And if I'm in a position where I am ahead of that wave, then I'm more likely to be picked up by it. So it's not that I have to sit back and say, okay, what can I do? Or I don't have the skills or I've got to go to college to learn something. That's not, that's logistics. That's not important. What's important is to say, where do I believe the world is going right now? Where is the world going to be in one to two years? What are the things that are important aspects of what people will need then, not now? Is it that the world is going to be full of robots? If it is, maybe I should learn how to fix robots. Is it that the world is going to be, um, uh, I don't know, people need uh, cheaper housing? Okay, maybe I need to start buying low-income housing. Maybe is it that people are going to buy electric cars? Maybe I should learn about batteries. Maybe, you know, ahead of it. Yeah. You always you always shoot ahead. Like the surfer goes out there for the wave that hasn't come upon them yet. If you do that and you you can take some of your time, right? And I know time is the most finite resource, the most valuable resource we've got, but you can take some of that time and you can devote it to future projecting and be positive. Be positive. The world isn't going to blow up two, three years from now. There's all the perma bears out there that will tell you, oh, the, you know, Federal Reserve's going to kill us and we're going to be all broke and, you know. No, no. We've been through far worse than that. I mean, World War II, come on. You can get through this stuff, but think optimistically. What do you think the world is going to have two, three, four years from now? And how do you position today to be on the right path ahead of it? And, yes, you're going to have to survive to get there. But, but I'll, I'll tell you how I bought my first ever rental property. This might be an easy way of doing it. I wasn't making a lot of money back then, but what money I had, I learned how to live frugally. I learned how to keep my burn rate as low as possible. I didn't buy all the things that the billboards on the side of the road were telling me to buy. I didn't get the latest iPhone. I didn't buy the Amex Platinum card. I didn't buy the greatest car, all these, these trappings that were sold to us. I lived in a, with a crappy old car that barely ran, but I knew how to fix it myself. I learned how to be self-sufficient. And then what I found was that the income levels were way ahead of what my costs were. So I saved money. And little by little by little, I saved up enough, enough to get a down payment to buy a piece of rental property. I begged, borrowed, and steal with banks and paid probably way too much interest to get my first one. But I did what I had to do. I put somebody in there, a tenant, and that tenant paid my mortgage off for me. I didn't take a dime out of that property. I let the tenant pay off the property for me. I went back and just kept doing my thing. I just did my work. I lived my frugal life. I just kept doing that. And eventually, five, six, seven years later, I owned half of that property now because the tenant had paid for it. I was doing, it was a win-win. They needed a place to live. I need someone to pay my mortgage. Here, you, let's make a deal, right? Mm -hmm. You do that on mass and on scale, you'll never work another day in your life. But you've got to get to that first place. You might need like $20,000. And people, people who are on like a total income of $30,000 a year go, Miles, how the hell am I going to make $20,000? <laughs> 
Yeah. I'll tell you how you go. You go buy some some idiot's old cheap vending machine, which they're willing to throw out for 500 bucks because they're too lazy to fill it up with candy and soda. And you pick that thing up off an, on eBay and you go out and make a deal with a gas station and you say to them, I'll tell you what, let me put my vending machine here and plug it into your power and I'll give you 20% of the proceeds of what we sell or the, you know, profit. And it might not be a gas station. It might be a guy who fixes tires. It might be the local barber shop. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's going to be somebody, right? And then you go out there every two weeks and you stock this thing up with, with uh, cheap soda you buy at Sam's Club or Costco or whatever, and you pull those coins out and you see that profit and you suck that thing away. And you do that every two weeks. You have your normal job, but you go out and you pull the money out of the vending machine. And eventually you're going to have $20,000. And then you take that $20,000 and you buy that rental property. And five years later, the tenants paid for the rental property. Then you either sell that property and take the profit and you buy five properties with it. And then you do it all over again and you be patient. Life's a marathon. And then eventually 10, 15 years later, you never work in another day in your life ever again. You got all the job security you ever want because you don't have a job. And that's how you do it. Right, it's it's basic. To me, it's common sense. They don't teach that in college. They don't teach that in high school. Yeah, it's common sense. But I think the thing that's that's easy to overlook because you didn't come up in this system. Um, um, being being uh, afraid of risk of taking risk is kind of bred into our educational system. You know, the way we're right. we're bred and taught is to get a good job. Now, the kids who go to the more affluent schools, you know, and their parents have money to send them to these prestigious private schools, they're bred to be entrepreneurs. They're bred to think outside the box. But the rest of us who don't attend those schools, I remember it from even when I was young, get good grades so that when you get older, you can get a good job. And that's what we're taught. So that's why I think it's so hard, at least for Americans, it's so hard to see it the way that you saw it coming in as an immigrant where you had no choice but to just take risks because you wanted to survive. So you had no choice for us. The survival is kind of built in. Like we already have it. Like, okay, as long as you don't screw up, you can survive, but you got to make sure that we're in control. As long as you let us stay in control, give us the power, you can survive. And I think that's the difference in the mentality. It's why so many people don't get it in, in the United I, States. I did, I did notice that it's sort of a cultural, I wouldn't say it's ideology. It's not so much that it's more cultural belief the, in a country which has had civil war, in a country which has, you know, had revolution as its founding, that built in, there's always a fear. Fear is a huge motivator here, uh, from a psychological standpoint. Yeah, not so much in other countries. Um, they don't tend to have the same fear. And the, the interesting thing, I, I remember back in the early two thousand two thousands, you probably remember the popularity of the Hummer. Remember that vehicle? Yeah. Oh God, I hated that. I know <laughs> the horrible things that it cost a million dollars to fill up with gas and yeah. couldn't park it anywhere. But every <laughs> every soccer mom had to have one, right? Well, this is like post nine eleven, and um, there was an interesting study of the the manu- the marketing of that vehicle. They uh, reached out to a French psychologist, and I can't remember his name. This is something your listeners may have to Google. Um, he was a guy who had been going around the speaking circuit talking about a thing called the, uh, uh, let me get this right, the prehistoric brain, I think it was, um, something like that. 
Anyway, the theory was psychologically that because of our ra- being raised as you know in sort of caves and and not always being the apex predator, that the human being when they seek out uh, to go out and hunt and to gather and to do the things we need for survival, that the uh, there was this thing in the back of our minds always looking over our back because it could be some T-Rex or something coming after us or whatever. Um, this was built into our psychosis and it's built into the core of our, of our brain. And in some cases, the, um, no, the reptilian brain, I'm sorry, that's what it was called, the reptilian brain. If you trigger that through certain events, 9-11 was a big one, then all of a sudden people will do anything and spend any amount of money on the sense that they need to become safe. And that's why the Hummer was such a success in the early 2000s. But today you couldn't give them away yeah. because the reptilian brain is part of our, our psyche. And, and I guess General Motors, whoever the manufacturer were at the time of that vehicle, tapped into that. And I think that there's that, that reptilian brain is a deep part of the American psyche because there's been hundreds and hundreds of years of history of struggle and fight, and we see it on our TV sets every day. Well, yeah, they, um, they, they rule us with fear. I mean, that's essentially how the government and everybody maintains control. It's through fear. Um, even right. right now, you're seeing it take place. You're seeing it slowly unfold and unravel, it, even with what's happening with COVID. You know, they're gradually, they're slowly just pushing that idea out there that, okay, even though I know, we know a lot of you guys say that you don't want to take this vaccine if we, we come out with it, but oof, we got to save your life. I mean, help me help you. I'm I'm trying to save your life here. You know, so what I'm going to do, here's what I'm going to do, because I'm a nice guy. I'm going to make it mandatory, you know, so that way you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about thinking about whether or not you're going to take it. If you don't take it, you're not going to be able to work. You're not going to be able to travel. Just right. I'm doing this for you. It's for your own good, because I love you. You know, but but that's the conversation that's slowly starting to take place. You know, you, you hear it. And once you start hearing that conversation, you know, it's coming. But it's all working based on the fear that's being been built up all throughout 2020. Like, oh yeah, Christmas is going to be really bad. We're going to expect a lot of losses over Christmas break, you know, over the Christmas vacation and everything. A lot of people are going to be dying. It's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. God, people, mm-hmm. oh, for God's sakes, it's going to get worse. That's all you're hearing, right? But but here's the reality: don't give up your power to the counterparty. Right, you, you're ultimately responsible for your body, and you do with it what you want. And and look, if the bonus is that you get to travel because you take a vaccination, um, and I and I worked in biotech, so I kind of understand the. I'm not a gene splicer or a genetic expert or anything, but I understand the nature of that. Um, I'll probably take it because I feel like I understand how RNA works and I understand how biotechnology works, and I don't fear that it would be a negative to me. I could be wrong. You know, you make your own judgments. But at the end of the day, I'm not doing it because a counterparty is telling me to do it. I'm doing it because I'm weighing up the pros and cons for me and my family. And I think that ultimately that's an individual responsibility. But I'm not, I, I, I get what you're saying about fear. I mean, it's on our nightly news every night, shock and awe, every single night, breaking news. It's not breaking Right. They're telling you. They're telling you stuff we've known for for months. It's just ridiculous, and yet the people are glued, you know, to the to the TV all day long because fear, the reptilian brain, is such an important part of our psyche, and in the United States, it's become an abused thing. 
in the same way that you can, there's a, there's a term FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. That's used as a reason for people to make Wall Street people rich. Like retail investors get wrecked. They get their, their butts handed to them out there because they buy something when it's high. Yeah. They don't buy it when no one wants it. Whereas the rest of Wall Street knows we're just going to hype this thing up and we know it, what it's really worth. We're going to buy it when it's cheap. Yeah, we're going to hype it up and sell it. <laughs> pump and dump. Right, right on. And again, it's fear, fear of missing out or it's fear of loss or it's fear of missed opportunity. I'll tell you the one fear, the thing that fears that scares me the most that nobody talks about. It's fear of regret. Yes. Regret is the worst possible curse upon the human species ever because when you get to the age of 60 or 65 and you look back and you regret that you didn't go around and, I don't know, live in Nepal or for a while or do this or do whatever your calling was, you never found your purpose, you can't get that back. Mm -hmm. And it's not... It's not that some COVID virus is going to kill you at that point. Your brain is going to kill you. Your brain is going to go to you and say, you idiot, you fool. And it's going to undermine your confidence in yourself. It's going to undermine what you value yourself at. And you're going to start looking for ways to compensate that lack of valuation by valuing you in things that are not important or in other people's misery so that you can dominate over them because you regret your own situation. Those things are real. We don't talk about those things. And that's a problem. I'm not a psychologist, but I find I learn more from studying psychologists than I, than I learn from watching CNBC, right? Yeah. It's easier for me to look at the human species and realize how flawed we are, but how much hope we have to overcome these things. Because it's not like we're going to build better robots and better smartphones, go to the moon, all that sort of stuff. That's all fun and games. But does it affect your daily life? What's going to make more important uh, technological uh, advancements is going to be your understanding of you. If you understand you better, then you can actually live with that for the rest of your life and you can, you can embrace it and be, be happy with everything around you and your immediate circles, what you can do for you, what you can do for your family, for your kids, for your parents. All of those people matter more than, than spending your time looking at a freaking smartphone for four hours a day. I mean, this is, we're losing it. And most importantly, the reason why we're losing it is because fear, as you rightly put it, is being used as a weapon against us. And for somebody who, as you rightly say, was not raised in an ideology of fear, but raised in a buck stops here, better get my butt together and better go and, you know, sort sort myself out. It's ironic when I look at the statistics and I see that, um, the new millionaires in this country that didn't make it from things like stock options and um, Wall Street and weren't given it and they're not trust fund kids, but they worked from nothing, and built themselves up. They're all immigrants. Exactly. I was just and the reason, that. yeah, they didn't come here with fear. They came here with opportunity. I'm a contrarian in that I don't follow that same mentality. I tend to come more from an immigrant standpoint and probably till the day I die, I'll keep that. I, I just want people to realize that the choice of fear over um, uh, success or fear over trying 
is led is in their hands, not in anybody else's. And it's not fair that some French psychologist can force them to buy Hummers. And it's not fair that some immigrant from uh, Thailand comes in and owns all of the pizza restaurants in the neighbourhood because they didn't have fear to go out there and do it. They have that power. We're all we're all in this together. There's no one person not better than the other. It's just that nobody's talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you say that. Um, I was right now I'm, I'm in Spain and I notice that over here I look out and I see nothing but opportunity. I see all of the right. things that I could do. I'm like, man, they don't have any of this. Those things are killing back home and they actually need those over here. They're about 20 years behind. Right on. I could take everything that was happening back there. I know it works. I know how this is going to play out. I've seen this movie already. I could do this now, but you know, and then have some things going on. So I'm also weighing the possibility of going back to the United States. And when I think about going back to the United States, that that United States brain kicks in. And I'm like, all right, I got to mm-hmm. get a good job here. <laughs> you know, with some benefits <laughs> and then things like that. What I'm thinking about going back to the U.S. But whenever I think about going somewhere else, I'm like, OK, I can take over this place. I just need to find a way in. Just let me find a right way on. in. And over here in Spain, See, you, it's actually the- kind of difficult, but... Yeah. You're the, you're the immigrant. Yeah. See, the, the mirrors, the mirrors turned here, right? You're the, the immigrant coming to the United States. You're the immigrant going to Spain. Right. You see opportunity. You see chance. You will probably take risk. You wouldn't care about it. You're like, what's the worst that can happen? Right. Um, yes. I got to go back home. Is that the worst that can happen? Big deal. Right. That's, that's literally um, what I say to myself. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to, welcome to my world. Uh, as an immigrant coming to the United States, it's exactly the same situation. It's just that we're in reverse now. Mm-hmm. I can't. That's part of the reason when we started this whole podcast. We, you asked me, I think maybe before it, um, when I if if I ever went back to Australia, and I said, you know, Frodo can't return to the Shire. <laughs> that's why, mate. That's why. Because yeah. if I go back there, I go back to the ideology and the fear of of succeeding in my own town. A, a very good friend of mine. <laughs> A very wise man who I met uh, many, many years ago said one thing to me once, and I, I, I have a feeling it might be a Jewish uh, parable, but I'm not sure. He said, you can never be a wise man in your hometown. And I thought, hmm, interesting, because I remember when being in Australia, if you were from the States or Britain or, or somewhere like that, and you came in and you were speaking at the local, you know, I don't know, some sort of local conference or whatever, everybody would flock. Yeah. To listen, because you didn't speak like them. You didn't think like them, right? right? But you put the local guy up there, they're like, eh, forget about it. <laughs> he doesn't about know him. what he's talking about. <laughs> exactly. He doesn't know about him. <laughs> so there you go. You're in the driver's seat, my friend. Yeah, it's just a matter of finding a way to take advantage of it. They, they Don't, the don't doubt yourself. Don't See, doubt yourself. I don't doubt myself. The ho- I probably just need to... Well, for one, get a better command of the language from a business perspective to be able to understand Mm -hmm. things. Um, But two, the Spanish government has so many safeguards, so many things in place to make sure that, okay, it's it's us first. We're going to make sure you understand that. We're not going to let you outsiders come in here unless you're (laughs) coming in with a bunch of money. Like it's like trying to break into Fort Knox, just trying to get get a, you know, find a crack to get in. You know, like you were able to go in the go oh, so, to so the, the jobs. Yeah. They they make it 
No, well, the, the, the first thing you do, right, well, the first thing you do in that situation is you find a partner. You find a local partner who you can work with and you expect that, you know, 50% of something is better than 100% of nothing. And you just take that on as a, as your entree. And during that relationship, you start building further relationships with other people you meet and your network and you expand your circle and eventually they'll treat you like you're one of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm debating on right now. I'm debating on trying that because I got, got something big coming up and going to have to make a decision soon. <laughs> so we're, we're debating on it. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, uh, what yeah. you just. But at least you're out there. You're out there trying. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Now, before you go, um, you have a lot of great conversations like this on your podcast. So I definitely want you to make sure you tell everyone about your podcast because you have a lot of great content on there. Okay, yeah, I started this about 18 months ago. Uh, the podcast is called the Unconstrained Podcast, and it's me rambling about my. Uh, you know, almost lecturing and I don't want to sound that way, but sometimes I have to tell, I have to go into great detail about certain things because it's a very complicated world we live in and there's a lot in this. So I, I talk about that sort of thing about once a week on the Unconstrained Podcast. About every three or four episodes, I bring in a thought leader who I find um, inspiring, who I find has done something unusual, uh, who is out there killing it in their, you know, crushing it in their market, um, and uh, somebody who probably does share a lot of my same philosophies, um, and a lot of a lot of them are, are people who are uh, very successful uh, uh, people in the in the states. So, you know, Americans who have gone out into the world and done crazy things that most people would be like, "Wow!" Um, they motivate me, they inspire me, and I learned a lot. And I find that the podcast is partially me throwing those ropes down from the top of the pyramid to help people pull them up. But at the same time, it's an opportunity for me to learn from others doing the same thing and to share stories, war stories and so on. So that comes out every week. Um, in addition, I have the website at beunconstrained.com where I write articles and uh, I, you know, promote the podcast for the most part. And finally, I have a book coming out this year called Financial Sustainability, which is the the art of financial sustainability, which is my methodology as to how to get your time back without losing it to some counterparty or an employer or something like that. So they're the things that are happening in my world right now. Miles, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast and dropping a lot of knowledge. It was really insightful. Uh, for everyone listening, yeah, you didn't hear me too much, but that's because everything he was saying was so valuable to there's no need for me to interrupt and ask a question that he was already answering anyway. So, and I talk a really lot, you know. <laughs> Sorry, I, mean, about that. I, I got that. I saw that. <laughs> you know, you, you talk a lot, but it's, at least it's not all fluff. You know, it's not just a bunch of hot air. It's actually, it's actually good. So, I, I oh, good. That. I'm glad. I'm glad it helps. It's funny, you know. You live in kind of a bubble sometimes. You, we all have our normal everyday life, you know, and we deal with our local challenges of things we have to do on a day to day basis, and we forget all the things we've learned over the years that we could help other people out with. So I'm a big fan of everybody doing something like this. I think it's great. We've all got something to offer in one way or another. You've been listening to the Jaded 80s Baby Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, review, and share the show. New episodes are released weekly. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jaded80sBaby. For business inquiries, email dfeiffer at jaded80sbaby.com. 